Before I start this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, I'll give my usual word of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. to episode 60 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been a decent week this week with a good range of sanctions, news, fraud, money laundering, and there'll be the usual roundup of all things cyber attack this week. Let's crack on. As usual, I've linked the main stories which I flag in the podcast up there in the description. Let's start with sanctions. This week's sanctions roundup starts in the United Kingdom, where the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, has responded to the sheer scale of license applications asking for permission to undertake what would otherwise be a prohibited transaction by issuing a new license. These applications have arisen from UK individuals and entities owed money by Russian and Belarusian designated persons where a contract was agreed with that designated person before their designation. On the basis that UK persons should not be prejudiced by the sanctions regime, Following the invasion of Ukraine, general license, well, here we go, INT 2023-3024200, allows a UK person, quotes, to receive payment where they are owed funds or economic resources by a designated person under a contract that was signed before the designated person was designated, subject to the terms of the general license being met. The general license a very useful blog post on the license from Offsea, which includes a summary of the conditions for its use, as well as a guidance document, can be found in the podcast description. Sticking with the UK for the next story, Offsea has also updated its guidance on, quote, how to request variation or revocation of a financial sanction designation under the Counter-Terrorism Sanctions EU Exit Regulations 2019. Those who are designated persons subject to sanctions may request a variation or revocation of their designation. So if you are a designated person listening to this podcast and you feel there was an error in your designation, you can see the updated podcast uh, guidance in the podcast description. Now to the US, where the Department of the Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control has sanctioned four entities and one individual believed to be concerned in cyber activity, negative cyber activity. North Korea is believed to be one of the more active sources of state-sponsored cyber attacks across the globe, so news like this, like this comes as no surprise, really. These sanctions seek to limit the operational ability of educational institutions and agencies in supporting these cyber attacks. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. The final bit of news this week is that the US has also sanctioned the head of the Wagner Group, which is, of course, the private military organisation or paramilitary organisation used very heavily by Russia in Ukraine and most notably recently in Bakhmut, they've uh, sanctioned the head of the Wagner Group in Mali, of all places. There are links across certain parts of the world to the Wagner Group and in Mali, that's now been sanctioned. Okay, that's it for sanctions. Let's move now to consider fraud. We start this week's roundup of fraud news with a warning to beware of shoulder surfing where the fraudster hovers over the victim's shoulder, notes a PIN used to access a banking app before stealing their phone and using the app to transfer funds from the victim's account. 
This is a practice which is now so common that the same story has appeared across a number of news outlets this week. It's worth remembering two things, I think. First, guarding a pin is something users of cash machines. Do you remember cash machines? Uh, we've been warned about that for decades. Secondly, a phone isn't really just a phone. If it were just a phone, then the problem might not be so worrisome. It is the fact that the typical modern phone is a bank card, it's a workstation, it's a personal life organiser. The typical modern phone contains so much information about us and our lives that we should all be treating them with a little more circumspection. More cyber awareness and less candy crush is the order of the day. We'll stay in the UK for a couple of success stories for the Crown Prosecution Service, the CPS. First, Anthony Costaniatu has been found guilty in his absence, he, he absconded during the trial, of fraud by false representation, fraudulent trading and money laundering at Southwark Crown Court. The fraud, the scale of which was estimated at around £70 million, that's 7-0, allowed Constantinou to live a lifestyle with all the typical trappings of success, except his success was very definitely at the expense of others. The other story from the CPS is the sentencing of an investment scammer to seven years and two months for conning 43 victims into investing into a fraudulent scheme. Jonathan Allard used the proceeds of his crimes to buy luxury cars, holidays, a high-end rented home, and to do a bit of shopping at Harrods. Link to both stories in the podcast description. To the US now, where the Department of Justice has been its typical productive self churning out press releases on various frauds committed across the Union. First, our old friend COVID relief fraud, where four different stories have been released. San Diego restaurant owners have been indicted for fraud on the Paycheck Protection Program and restaurant revitalization funding loans. Similarly, a Long Island restaurateur and adventure park owner has pleaded guilty to fraud on the Payback or Paycheck rather Protection Program and Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. A businessman from a businessman from West Virginia has been sentenced to 10 months for obtaining 10,000 US dollars of CARES Act funding. And finally, a tax preparer and their client have been charged with $13 million worth of Paycheck Protection Program fraud. Links to all stories can be found in the podcast description. The second story is news aimed at taking out facilitators who aid criminals in the movement of their criminal proceeds. As the Department of Justice press release provides, multiple law enforcement actions addressed conduct by individuals sometimes referred to as money mules, who have been providing critical services to fraudsters by receiving money from fraud victims and forwarding the fraud proceeds to the perpetrators, many of whom are based overseas. Link to that story is in the podcast description. And finally, to the European Union and the European Central Bank, which has published its Card Fraud Report. The report, which compiles information from 20 card payment corporations, identifies an overall fall in fraud levels. Between 2020 and 2021, the period covered by the report, card not present fraud fell by 12%, whereas card present fraud fell by 6%. Overall, card not present fraud accounted for approximately 84% of the total value of card fraud in 2021 which is probably, I suspect, accounted for by the continuing disruption of COVID-19 and the restrictions associated with it. Anyway, you can read the full report, which is linked in the podcast description.
That's it for fraud. Let's now turn our attention to bribery and anti-corruption. The bribery and anti-corruption stories this week take us on a tour of Europe before taking a sharp shift across the Atlantic. In Slovakia, the governor of the National Bank of Slovakia, Peter Kazimir, will stand trial for bribery later this year. To Spain now, where Transparency International has signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the Spanish Agency for International Development Corporation to, quote, cooperate against corruption as a way to strengthen democracy and promote human rights, key commitments to advance the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Now to the UK, where a senior officer with the Broxbourne Borough Council in Hertfordshire has been arrested on allegations of bribery. The arrest happened some time ago, apparently, but the reports have only been released this week. No details of the name or precise status of the officer concerned have been released, nor, frankly, is there any more detail on the National Crime Agency website when I looked on that. I have to keep an eye on that one. It's all gone very quiet. To the US now, where there is finally a bit of good news for Ericsson, the telecoms company whose bribery troubles have been well documented over the last few years. The news is that a Boston-based pension fund has lost its action against Ericsson, which, it was alleged, misled investors about its compliance with US anti-bribery laws. The other story is the sentencing of a planning and permitting supervisor for taking bribes. Wayne Anuyu from Honolulu was sentenced to 60 months imprisonment, two years supervised release and a $100,000 fine for taking more than $103,000 in bribes in exchange for expediting the approval of permits issued by the Department of Planning and Permitting, the DPP, of the city and county of Honolulu and for making false statements to federal, federal investigators with intent to conceal his crimes. The link to the Department of Justice press release is in the podcast description. Now, that's it for bribery and corruption. Focus shifts to money laundering. Money laundering news this week starts in the European Union with a story which is not quite a money laundering story, but this is as good a place to mention it as any place, I suppose. Members of the European Parliament's Civil Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs Committee have adopted a draft position by overwhelming majority covering a range of issues which will impact criminal actions across a range of matters relevant to the fight against financial crime. The press release which accompanies this announcement provides, and this is quite an extensive quote, but I thought it was useful to get the whole thing. Compared to existing legislation, the new directive would also cover trafficking in firearms, certain crimes committed as part of a criminal, uh, criminal organisation, and violation of EU sanctions. In their position, MEPs propose to include also illegal trafficking of nuclear material, crimes falling within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, the illegal seizure of air aircraft and ships, and sabotage. The agreed text would close loopholes by ensuring assets can be frozen quickly with temporary urgency measures where necessary. The proposal would also crack down on those evading confiscation with the help of a third person and allow confiscation in certain cases where conviction is not possible, for example in cases of illness or death of a suspect. To make cross-border investigations more efficient, the law would harmonise the powers of asset recovery offices set up by member states, ensuring that they get access to necessary information such as beneficial ownership registries, securities and currency information, 
customs data, and annual financial statements of companies. Finally, to prevent assets from degrading, member states would have to set up dedicated offices to manage confiscated assets. MEPs also want to ensure that victims are compensated before confiscation, especially in cross-border cases, and allow confiscated assets to be used for social or public interest purposes. I told you it was an extensive quote. If you want to read the full press release, it's available, of course, in the podcast description. To the UK now, where the Gambling Commission has been active again, issuing a fine of £305,150 against skills on net limited for its social responsibility and money laundering failings. On money laundering failings specifically, the company, which operates 50 websites, that's five zero, in the period between January 2021 and December 2022, failed to comply with the Prevention of Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing, failed to ensure that operators based in foreign jurisdictions fail uh, to comply with or failed to ensure that they complied with the Money Laundering Regulations 2017 and that it failed to adhere to certain anti-money laundering guidance. Link to the brief press release and the extensive public statement can be found in the podcast description. We'll stick with the UK, where the Joint Money Laundering Steering Group has announced a consultation on a revision to Part 1 of its guidance. The proposed revisions take account of amendments relating to discrepancy reporting as introduced by the Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing Regulations 2022. There's also a proposed amendment to Part 1, Chapter 5, relating to the mitigation of impersonation risk. Responses should be received at the JMLSG by the 26th of June 2023 and links to all relevant documents, including the recipient for commentary, are in the podcast description. The final story this week is a bit of speculation, I suppose, but I've included it. I don't like to include speculation, but there have been enough respected agencies reporting this, including Reuters, that there may well be some truth to it. Anyway, the, the, the news is that Lebanon may be grey-listed by the Financial Action Task Force. A plenary discussion for Lebanon is listed on the FATF website for May 2023, and it's believed that the preliminary evaluation will be shared with FATF members uh, in Bahrain at the plenary. I suppose we wait and see, but the damage in the meantime is being felt by the Lebanese, who've had the speculation on this grey-listing cause something of an economic shock in the area. So we'll have to wait to see what comes from that. Now, that's it for money laundering. A bit of a small market abuse story before we end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast with the cyber attack news. So there's one piece of market abuse news, and it comes from the United Kingdom, where the government has, by statutory instrument, made certain amendments to Part 5 of the Criminal Justice Act 1993. The Insider Dealing Securities and Regulated Markets Order 2023, SI number 582, can be found in the podcast description along with a link to the Criminal Justice Act 1993. Worth saying, I suppose, that the Criminal Justice Act 1993 contains the United Kingdom's criminal uh, framework for insider dealing. Now, cyber news this week. Usual roundup, usual good range of cyber stories. Anyway, we'll start with China which has come under the spotlight from the Five Eyes Intelligence Network. The Five Eyes Intelligence Network is this intelligence coordination of intelligence agencies around the world made up of the US, Australia, Canada, New Zealand and the United Kingdom. The allegations are that 
A state-sponsored Chinese hacking group called Vault Typhoon is spying on a wide range of US critical infrastructure organizations and that similar activity could be happening in other jurisdictions. We've seen in recent weeks that critical infrastructure has been targeted by hackers across the globe, so it would come as no surprise for there to be any truth in this intelligence. The warning on critical infrastructure was echoed across the globe by apparently coordinated news from Australia that China could target critical systems in Australia, taking them offline in the event of conflict. And also in the UK, where the National Cyber Security Centre and GCHQ, which is the spy centre, have also warned about the threat from Chinese state-sponsored cyber attacks. I guess there must be something in this, because they wouldn't go to the trouble of flagging this as a possible problem and then risk upsetting the Chinese if it's a complete fabrication. So anyway, keep an eye on that one. There's bound to be more on that. So on that less than cheery note, we can now turn to more mundane cyber attack news. We start with a roundup from the US where PillPack, the Amazon-owned online pharmacy, has reported a cyber attack which has impacted the accounts of some 20,000 customers. Very little further information has been released, but it's understood that social security information has not been compromised. There's been yet another attack on US local government, with news that the FBI is investigating a cyber attack on the city of Augusta. There was little news earlier in the week, but as the week has gone on, sources began to suggest it was a ransomware attack. Finally, from the US, it's been announced that the FBI seized domains linked to a series of distributed denial-of-service attacks. Now, sticking with North, North America, only this time hopping the border to Canada, where the Canadian Nurses Association has confirmed it suffered a cyber incident early last month, but there is no comment on the form of cyber incident which occurred. However, the Snatch ransomware gang has listed the Canadian Nurses Association as a victim, so I'm guessing it was a ransomware attack, or certainly it will turn out to be in coming weeks. And finally, from new cyber attack news this week, the Suzuki Motorcycle Factory in India has announced that production was shut down due to a cyber attack earlier this month. In terms of historic cyber attacks, DISH, the US satellite TV corporation, has confirmed that the personal information of around 300,000 employees was stolen in a cyber attack in February this year. Customer databases were apparently unaffected. In Australia, Latitude, the financial services provider, has announced that it expects a steep drop in earnings following its widely documented cyber attack. Now, the other bits of news which relate to cyber attacks come from a couple of articles which I thought were worth flagging, actually. I've linked them both in the podcast description, and they really deal with responses to cyber attacks. And they they raise some interesting points. The other interesting bit of cyber attack news is a publication from the US Department of the Defense. So let's start with those those articles. The first is an article in Contractor UK, which is without doubt my favorite periodical, about what the Capita cyber attack might mean for IT contractors. Now, we flagged the cyber incident as it initially was. It then became a cyber attack later on. We flagged that Capita cyber attack a lot the impact it's had more widely because of the services which Capita provide to various organizations and corporations and so on. The highlight of this little article is the section on tips on what to do if you're affected by the Capita cyber attack. Worth reading. 
just for that, I think, if you feel your corporation may have been affected by that capita attack. The other article is about the honesty and integrity of communications following a cyber attack, especially when it comes to reputation management. Now, we see this a lot where there's sometimes a time lag between the actual cyber attack taking place and the announcement from the corporation that they were the victim of a cyber attack. What this article is suggesting is that honesty and integrity up front can be a good thing when it comes to reputation management. Worth a read, quite a short article. It's from the consultancy firm Alix Partners. The final bit this week is that the US Department of Defense has transmitted to Congress the classified 2023 DOD, that's the Department of Defense Cyber Strategy. The 2023 DOD Cyber Strategy establishes how the department will operate in and through cyberspace to protect the American people and advance the defense priorities of the United States. Link in the podcast description. Well, that's it for episode 60 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me once more, all being very well, next Sunday. If you're in the UK, enjoy the sunshine. Have a great week, everyone.